good to see you guys today. I'm almost seeing you because my glasses fog up as soon as I put them on in here. And so I'll notice you guys in a second. Let me pray real quick before we open the word today. Dear Jesus, we love you. We, we want those words that we just read to turn my eyes from lesser glories to be a reality in our lives. Right now, as we look at Scripture, as we look at Your Word, as we try to understand the, the glory of Christ Jesus and how that reality penetrates our hearts, causes us to be like Him, and how that reality is actually really the root, the anchor for which all things will one day be made new. Make that truth apparent to us today, Father God, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is what Romans 8 tells us, uh, that right now, in this moment, creation, all of creation, all the created order is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. When Paul says, at that moment, they will obtain the freedom of their glory. I don't know if my mic dropped out, did it? Okay, good. Sound like it did. Uh, in, in other words, in response to man's sin, God long ago subjected the created order to futility, to corruption. He, he placed it in bondage, is what Paul is saying, in order to vividly display the, the moral atrocity that sin is, how horrible sin really is. All that is broken right now in this world is, a, is, is kind of like a picture, a parable of just how costly it is to dishonor uh, and bring shame upon the, the true and living God. And yet, Romans 8 tells us that God, when he did this, he did this in hope. Hope was driving him to do this. The curse and all of its futility that we read about in, in Genesis 3 wasn't accidental. It wasn't just a judgment. It wasn't just God's justice for what had been done uh, with Adam and Eve. It was, Paul says, for hope. There's hope in that, that creation would one day be set free from its bondage to corruption forever. And as we come to the close of John 3, which is where we've been, looking at John 3 for the last, I'd say, six or seven weeks at least, having explored this reality that is called the new birth, this experience that uh, God comes into the lives of people who are spiritually dead and makes them new. He, he brings them to life. When we look at that reality in John 3, we are looking at the same hope that I just talked about from Romans 8. John the Baptist, if you, call, if you recall, profoundly said to his disciples uh, at the very close of last week, um, the text that we looked at, he said that the long-awaited Christ had come, and now that he's here, he must increase, that is, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. This is John's response to the entrance of Jesus into this world. John says, I need to recede into the background so that the glory of Christ Jesus shines brightly through my life. And everything I say, 
and everything I think about and everything that I do. And so there's a link between John and all of us being gripped by the glory of Christ Jesus so that we say things like that, we feel things like that, and the hope that God promised from the very beginning when everything was falling apart. Not just hope for those who are, who are born again, but hope for all of creation, all of created reality that we see broken around us. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John 3, verse 31. We're going to be closing up the chapter today of John 3, at least, unless God tells me something between next, next, uh, today and next Saturday. <laughs> Um, in these six verses, we're going to see the, the hope that we saw in Romans 8 and the, 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 the glory of Christ collide in a stunning way. Verse 31, John says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that, that God is true. For he whom God has sent the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, this passage in the original Greek, we don't know if it is John the Baptist talking, or if this is John the author, which I'm led to believe it is, John the author listening to John's quotation and then writing his own summary of what John the Baptist meant. We don't know who it is. We know it is a John, so you can, <laughs> you can check that one off. It's a John for sure. Um, and it doesn't matter who's explaining it because we know that ultimately God is the one who's behind this author. The Spirit of God inspired this passage so that the author, whoever he is, would hold out God's ultimate purpose in the world. Not just his purpose for you and I, but his purpose for the entire cosmos, all of created reality. And we will see as we dive into this passage that this is directly connected with what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, the new birth experience, the experience of being born again, coming to trust in Christ. That points to this very hope that we just saw in Romans 8. That all creation one day set free from its bondage and corruption. That one day the children of God who have been born of the Spirit, been given new life, they will be revealed for who they truly are. And on that day, the creation will be set free from all the brokenness that we see, that we've seen in spades in 2020. That's going to happen. From wars, fires, disease, famine, all of it, one day, John tells us, is going to be, or Paul tells us in Romans 8, is going to be restored. It's going to be made new. So John begins here by connecting that reality to, to the new birth in verse 31 with what John always begins with, with Jesus. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so what John's trying to do here is he's trying to capture a, really what is an incomprehensible delta. He is trying to capture a, a delta between those who belong to the earth, and that's 
all of us, that's John the Baptist, that's John the author, next to the one who comes from above, from heaven, which of course is Christ Jesus. John says that Christ alone is above all. Christ doesn't belong to the earth like the rest of us. He doesn't speak in an earthly way like us. Christ comes from above, and therefore he is above all things. And John's not just talking about a physical location here. This isn't geography when he says above all. He uses the words above all because he's talking about worth and authority and glory. He's saying that Christ Jesus is supreme over everything that exists. He's taking all the glory in this world, all of it, that we hold dear and precious to us, good things that we love, and he's not diminishing it, but he is stating a fact that next to the, to the value of Christ and the worth of who Jesus is, everything else, the value of everything else drops to zero in comparison. Christ is supreme in value. He is supreme in authority. He is supreme in glory. He is above all, John says. And the divide between him and anything else in creation is an infinite divide. John wants us to feel that. He wants us to feel that reality. Isaiah 40, 17 describes it like this. This is a stunning text. I love this text. All the nations, Isaiah says, that is everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. All the nations are as nothing before him. It's Christ. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is how the Bible deals with Jesus, the reality of who he is and his worth compared to everything else. Not to diminish anything else, but to show the comparison, the delta between the people who belong to the earth next to the one who is from above. It says we are less than nothing. Next to Jesus Christ, all of us together on one side of the scale is like emptiness compared to his value and glory and worth. Paul tries to capture this in Ephesians and he uses words like unsearchable and immeasurable because he's saying, I can't, I can't define this. I can't give him boundaries. Christ is beyond all of those boundaries. There's no language that can capture who he is, how awesome he is. So don't try to measure his glory because whatever view you have of it, Paul's saying effectively by using those words, is massively short. His, his, his majesty, his worth is incalculable. And so John simply says he is above all. And so he starts with the unparalleled supremacy of Jesus Christ. He wants us not only to acknowledge it in our heads, it's easy to, for us to say, oh yeah, that's right. He wants us to feel this reality and be gripped by it. This is who Jesus is. And therefore, when he enters our world and when he speaks, he is unlike anyone else who's ever spoken from the earth or in an earthly way. Verse 32 in this text, John 3 begins to tell us why that is. John says, one of the Johns say, He, Christ, is who he's talking about, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he, and that he there is God, gives the spirit without measure. This is how Christ is different from us, practically, tangibly. Christ is the one who is above all. He was sent by God into our world to speak the very words of God. 
doing this, he is bearing witness to what he's seen and heard. He's bearing witness to what he's, he's been in the presence of, and that is God himself. Um, which is precisely what, I don't know if you remember this, a few weeks back, Jesus said this exact same thing to Nicodemus, John 3.11. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. This is the same exact testimony that John's talking about here. It points to the eternal reality that Christ, who is uh, above all things and has always been with God, is now entering the world and speaking. John 1 said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. Before there was a universe, before there was space and time, before there was any created physical reality, there was God. And yet the Bible would tell us God was never alone. Never alone. God was Father and Son in perfect eternal love. The Father the, is the original. The Son is eternally begotten. Theologically, that's how we would put it. And yet they are one God. And this is why the Son's entrance into the world is so stunning and why his words are so unprecedented Christ, in, in all that he did, and all that he said when he came into this world, was showing us who God really is. Remember John 1.14, which is a text we've looked at multiple times over the past six months, eight months. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So it's the Father's glory shining through the Son into our world. And yet John here tragically says no one receives his testimony, which is a a recurring theme that we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of John. And by and large, what it's saying is that generally speaking, no one received the testimony of Christ. Very few people came to him. They rejected his testimony. They would not receive him or his testimony. The only way that happened, Jesus tells us at the beginning of John 3, is if they are born again. There has to be this dramatic, radical, miraculous exception to the rule in order for people to receive testimony. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But when that happens, when someone is born again, when they're born of the Spirit, They believe the testimony, they receive Jesus, they see him as the treasure that he is, and John here says in verse 33, they set their seal that God is true, which is a strange idiom. We don't don't say that often nowadays. (laughs) Um, What does he mean by that? Why why does he say they set their seal? Well, this word in the Greek would mean that in receiving Jesus, we are in a way authenticating the reality of God and his faithfulness, his truthfulness, all of his promises about the Christ. We are saying in that receiving, God is true. Everything else in this world can be false, if it, if it is. But this one thing is true, God. And we are, as Christians, as people who have been born again, evidence of his truthfulness. There would be no new birth. There would be nobody interested, I mean, sincerely, genuinely interested in Jesus if this wasn't the case, if God wasn't true. So to set our seal to God is to display the reality of, of God's truthfulness. His, his, he keeps his promises. 
He told us in the Old Testament he was going to send Jesus into the world, and he has done it, and now that we see him, we love him. And that can only happen when there's this powerful supernatural act of the Holy Spirit on the heart called being born again, which links John's words about Christ, the words of Christ, with this reality of the Holy Spirit. There's a link between the Holy Spirit and the words of Christ. By saying that, that uh, the Spirit is given without measure from God to the, to the, to the Son, they're, they're, John is connecting the two realities. He's saying that there's something about the words of Christ that are driven by the Spirit into the heart so that somebody who would not believe in Jesus believes in him. So Spirit without measure. Think about every person that has shown up in the biblical narrative. They've, they've been given the Spirit to some degree. Some measure has been given to them. But Christ, according to John here, was given the very words of God, and he was given the Spirit without measure. So there's this unbreakable link between the Holy Spirit and the Word. And that's why it's through the Word that the new birth comes. It's through the gospel being preached that people come to know about Jesus and receive him. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in John 6, 63. This is, I love this, this verse. It's so simple. Jesus says to his disciples, as people are going away from him, saying, we can't follow you anymore. We don't believe what you're saying. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then amazingly, he says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So when Christ speaks, or, or when we, we like even speak the words of Christ 2,000 years later, or even anything in the biblical uh, scriptures, um, the Spirit is the one who gives life through those words. He's the one who drives them. It is impossible to have life, the eternal life that the Bible talks about, without this reality. So this is precisely how the new birth happened to us. If you love Jesus right now in this room, this experience happened to you. He broke through the defenses, all the arguments, all the difficulties you had with it, and you said, yeah, he's real, and he loves me, and you received him. Which, now that we look at this passage, we've moved now into the final verses, and what's going to happen here is the supremacy of Christ at the front end of it, and the, the, uh, the, the reality of his word at the, 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 in the middle of this text are going to collide and invade our lives in verse 35 and 36. So listen to what John says here. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's a sober line from John. John is telling us that Christ is where eternity divides, like a rock in the middle of a stream. What you and I make of Jesus has eternal implications. Whether we see life or whether we, according to John here, remain under wrath. That's what's at stake here. And, and notice his language here. To reject Christ isn't just to embrace wrath from being in a place of neutrality. It is to remain under wrath, which tells us like the default position of the human soul 
isn't embracing God, trying to seek God, really loving God and pursuing him, the default position of the human heart, according to this text, and that word remains, is under the just wrath and judgment of God for how we have, since Genesis 3, dishonored his eternal reality and his worth by, I mean, if we're, if we're real about it, if I'm real with you, like not giving him the time of day. He created me. He sustains me. Every single thing that I have that's good in my life, he's given to me. Even the bad things that will help me be better, he's given me. But how long do, does the day go on before I actually even think about him or even take note of his reality and his worth? How much I rely upon him? He, he not only deserves the time of day, he deserves our complete and total surrender. I mean, he, is, he should be everything to us since all good things that we have come from his hand. So this is what Romans 8 was telling us about at the beginning when we talked about corruption, when we talked about futility, those things entering into the world, this bondage of corruption that, that Paul was talking about. All that stems from this one word in uh, John 3.36, wrath, all of it. God's justice is, is poured out into creation to, to kind of show us and wake us up because we don't really care about our sin as much as God does. It's not a big deal to us. But when there's forest on fire and when all the world is breaking apart and we feel like things are going to end tomorrow, we start to recognize, man, this must be a, a big deal. Sin must be a big deal to God. It's not a small thing. There's a moral horror that we should have towards sin that a lot of people are apathetic for. They just don't feel it. And so to God, sin here isn't just a small thing that we do. It is cosmic treason. John's laboring. He's laboring to tell us all paths do not lead to eternal life. He wants us to believe there's only one path that leads to eternal life, and it is Christ Jesus. It's in receiving him. It's receiving in all that he's done for us. And these are heavy words. I'm not going to deny it. Like, this is heavy words. Wrath is not an easy word to say. No less feel. But John's not interested in playing games. He's not interested in pulling punches. There is too much at stake for him to care whether or not we like him at the end of the day. He desperately wants us to believe in Christ because it is the only way that we will see life. And the reason we can have eternal life is precisely what happens in verse 35. I don't know if you saw it there. Listen again to what John says. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What in the world does he mean there? What does it mean for God the Father to have given to Christ Jesus all things, pantos in the Greek? And how does that relate to everything John's just said in this passage about the worth of Christ Jesus? He is above all about the words of Christ Jesus, his testimony. Where's the connection? We know that, that, that Christ is above all things, that he is infinitely worthy. We know that he was sent into the world by God to declare the truth from God, to declare God's own words, and given the Spirit without measure. How is all of that linked to verse 35? It just, why, does John, why does John put it here? Here's the reason why. God intends to reconcile all creation to himself. That is why the Father has given the Son all 
things that he might redeem all of them, take them back for himself. This is not a small truth. This is not a mere sentence. (laughs) This is an enormous reality if we could feel it for what it's worth. The father in his eternal undying love for his own son and, and for his the infinite worth of his own son, which is a, a display, a reflection of who he is. It's the image of God. He's the image of God. He gives him everything that must be reconciled back to, his, back to him. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. When all creation is waiting for, with eager longing, it's waiting for this specific thing, for the culmination of what God first intended when he placed into his son's hands literally everything in the cosmos. Some of you may have been with us back a few years ago when we went through Colossians um, and we looked at the Christ hymn, which is this magnificent text passage in Colossians 1. Paul in this passage shows us precisely what John 3.35 is pointing to, how God has reconciled all things to himself in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Paul says, He, verse 15 of of Colossians 1, if you're following along, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, see that word come up again? It's one word in the Greek, were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. In Him all all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now listen carefully to Paul's language here. Listen to what he says. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is saying that through this preeminent, supreme being that we know as Jesus Christ, through whom and for whom literally all things exist, in him God reconciled to himself everything in the universe. Whether it's in earth or whether it's in heaven, Every single part of creation has been reconciled back to God so that it is in right relationship with him. And it's been done that way, according to Paul here at the very end of this text, by the blood of the cross of Christ. That's how Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. His suffering on that cross, the experience of God's justice being poured out on him for our sins, is the only reason that anything in this universe can be reconciled. So that if we, if we receive him, anyone can be reconciled to God. If they receive Christ Jesus by faith, they are united to him. And that moment forward, they enjoy unending peace between them and the Father. A peace that will one day be enjoyed by literally every single part of creation. All things. So think about this. Christ takes up into his arms everything. And he brings them to the only place in the universe where they can be redeemed and restored. The cross. And there, 
as the blood of the one who is above all, the infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious Christ is shed. As that blood is shed on this cross, according to Paul, the very hope that is spoken of in Romans 8 becomes in that moment a reality. It's no longer a hope. It has been done. God has reconciled all things to himself. And this was always the plan. This isn't plan B. This isn't an afterthought. This isn't just something God came up with after the fall. This is the very hope that Paul spoke of in Romans 8. God subjected creation to futility in hope. So from all eternity, think about this for a moment, from all eternity, this was the plan. Ephesians 1 says this, I mean it says it beautifully, according to God's purpose, talking about the redemption that happened on the cross, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. This is not an afterthought. This is not God figuring things out when things go wrong. This is plan A. Before any sin ever occurred, before there was a thing called humanity, even before the universe was spoken into existence, there was a plan in the heart of God. There was a way in which he was going to display his beauty and his glory to creation, and it was rooted in love. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, including us who would come to believe in Christ. We've all been united to Christ, and therefore we are recipients of that same love. The affection that the Father has for his Son doesn't just terminate on Jesus, it terminates on everyone in Jesus Christ, which includes us. So God knew you before he created the universe. He knew who you would be. He knew your sin, all of it, even the stuff that hasn't happened yet. And then in his love for you, he planned this great act of redemption and gave into his hands, the hands of his precious, unparalleled in worth son, all things, so that Christ, who alone is above all, might take them to the cross and ransom them from sin and death with his own life, the only life in the universe that is worthy enough to actually do this. This is why the hope of Romans 8 is so critical. Remember, Paul said the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It didn't want this to happen, but because of him who subjected it in hope, the only one who was hoping in Genesis 3 was God. In hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. A, a children that aren't born just of the flesh, that aren't born of the will of man, like John 1.13 tells us, but that are born of God. So the root of all redemption flows into the reality of the new birth. The, 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 the redemption that all of creation is going to experience is rooted in the revealing of the children of God. Children who God brought into the world by his Holy Spirit. And therefore, the hope that our lives cling to every single day is that Christ will come back to finish what he has started. What he started in us individually. He will return one day in great glory and bring to himself, gather from every single inch of this world to himself all who have trusted in him.
And when that day comes, all of creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Which is why he says right now, you look across this world, I mean, it was true 2,000 years ago. It'll be true as long as Christ tarries. We will see creation waiting eagerly. And it's been waiting this way since the very beginning for a hope that will be realized when Christ Jesus returns. Last week, we, we ended with a picture of the bride. It was Revelation 21, if you recall. The bride of Christ, the church, everybody who's redeemed, being brought by the Father to the Son at the last and final wedding. And do you remember the last words that were spoken just before the, the marriage? It came from a voice that came from the throne saying, behold, I make all things new. That's what John 3.35 is pointing to. When creation enters into the glorious reality that you and I have tasted in the new birth and experienced in having the Holy Spirit poured out in our lives to some degree, but one day everything will be free, finally free. There won't be any smoke. There won't be any viruses. There won't be any pandemics. We may not even have words for it anymore because we don't need them. There won't be any death because Christ has reconciled all things by making peace by the blood of his cross. And so this is why John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. This is why he says it. The worth of Christ Jesus, the glory of Christ Jesus fuels his desire to display him in the world, to make much of him and make nothing of us, make less of us, I should say. Everything hangs on that is the worth of Christ on that tree which, which paid to undo ages and ages of trauma caused by sin and therefore it is the worth of Christ, the gospel that defines every second of our lives. This is what John the Baptist felt when he saw Christ first arrive and 2,000 years later, this is the same reality experienced by us who've tasted his glory. So during the next song as we continue in worship, uh, if your faith is in Christ, I invite you to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper and Communion. The individual cups are out there if you haven't grabbed one. Um, and as you do, I just want you to reflect on this passage, just the, the beauty and the glory of Christ and how that was essential to the redemption of all things, not just us, but everything we will enjoy in the ages to come. And allow the weight of that glory to penetrate the depths of your heart. Not just to think about it up here, but to feel it, that Christ, who is above all, was given all things so that one day you and I and everything that's been redeemed out there will be set free to enjoy the eternal glory of our Father in perfect peace. Our lives in this world are meant to live in the light of that fact. That this, is, this brokenness is not the last story. There's a better story, and we live in the light of that. And this is precisely why John the Baptist has no difficulty in saying, he must increase and I must decrease. Let's join him in saying that. Let's pray real quick.
Heavenly Father, what a glorious reality this is. The weight of the glory of Christ Jesus as the seed to bring about all things being made new. That it had to be the most worthy being in the universe. And so you sent your son. And you put into his hands everything. Father, help us in some way. I and mean, we are frail creatures with distractions. We have all sorts of different limitations, Father God, between us and this truth, this reality. By your Holy Spirit, Father, help us taste something of this glory this morning as we worship, as we reflect during communion, as we even go about our days this week. Help us understand the glory of Christ how worthy, how beautiful he is. And may that reality so penetrate our lives that we say with John the Baptist, there's no question about it. He must increase and I must go to the very corner to show how glorious, how worthy he is. I must decrease to display his beauty that he's everything to us. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.